Well, good morning, church. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. Uh, As Jeff said, my name is Nick Missios. Um, I've known Jeff forever. Um, Quick little, you know, like sometimes websites or products will have like an FAQ. I'll I'll do the FAQ version of who I am. My name is Nick Missios. I am not a pastor. Uh, I do attend Lakeview Christian Center. I've been there for 35 years or so, 36 years. Um, Yes, I am married to Charlie and Violet's lovely daughter, Angel. No, I don't know how or why God saw fit to bless me with that miracle. Uh, yes, I am grateful every day that he did so. Uh, no, like I said, I'm not a pastor, so I, I don't typically preach. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here with you guys this morning and to talk about something I think is, is really, uh, really wonderful. So um, before I start, I do want to say one thing. I, I love your church. Um, I love your people it's one thing, it, it is special for me to, to kind of preach for the first time in front of this particular congregation because you hold a really special place in my heart. Um, like I said, I've known, Jeff was my youth pastor for like a year there, and we were in youth together before that. Um, I'm married to Charlie and Violet's daughter, so my in-laws are here, Kristen's here, and David when he's not out in the middle of the Gulf. Um, Stu and Nancy were not just covenant group leaders to me. They were, they were like second parents to me. Um, and that, like my whole group just migrated up here, right? All y'all just left. That was back when I was like the only person, everybody else was literally twice my age. And they still let me talk like I knew something at that time. Uh, God bless your patience. Um, I did a married couples, small group thing, the young marriage group that was awesome with Zach and Aaron. Um, you know, I, I did an alpha table with, Katie and Evan, and I remember thinking, like, no way Jeff's going to let her marry this dude, but, but, but he did, and that worked out great, so good job, Jeff. Uh, so all that to say, I love your church. I'm really, really glad to be here, and when I heard of some of the difficulties happening towards the end of last year, one of the first things I asked, I went to Keith, and I went to Pete, and I was like, how do I help? How can I help? What can I do? And I did not envision it ending up here. I, I, it was one of those offers that I made without really realizing that there wasn't a really a practical way to actually help. And then God made a way. So uh, here I am, and I'm glad to be here. Um, I want to start by asking you a question. Imagine you got a request, an anonymous request. So you don't even know who's asking you to do this. You got a request to get a three-by-five note card and write on it one Bible verse or passage and stick in an envelope with a stamp and mail it someplace to somebody in America, and you don't know who. Uh, he could be a single dad of four. Uh, she could be a high-powered corporate attorney that specializes in mergers and acquisitions. Um, maybe it's a 12-year-old girl entering middle school. Maybe it's, it's a man with terminal cancer. Um, what would you write on that card? What verse would you write? Now, I think that, in part, that's dependent on you, right? So your natural disposition is going to inform some things there. Um, maybe you just go like old tried and true, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Great verse, right? Sent his only son. Clear, concise presentation of the gospel. Maybe you go back to the beginning. Maybe you're a uh, Genesis 1-1, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's great. 
Um, maybe you're the feel-good type. So you like, like Jeremiah 29:11. like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Or, um, I can do all things through Christ who, str- Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4:13, Or some other verse that you saw hand-lettered at Hobby Lobby on some wall decor that was waiting to be hung like in a little breast- breakfast nook and misapplied. Um, maybe you're more confrontational, so you go with like Romans 3:23, just bring it straight to him, like for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and, you know, here's the thing. is the scripture is all inspired, right? 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that, that all scripture is God-breathed, right? And it is all profitable for training in righteousness, right? So whatever we're going to write, if it's from the Bible, maybe, maybe you don't really know much scripture, so you write like God helps those who help themselves. That doesn't count in this, right? So, but all scripture is profitable, right? So you could write anything, and you could trust God to do the work he needs to do with that. But... Uh, it would help to know your audience, right? Knowing our audience helps us. Uh, I, my five-year-old has heard me say, read the room enough, right? To repeat it himself. We, it helps if we know who we're talking to. And, and in a lot of ways, this is the, this is the art um, of biblical counseling. So in biblical counseling, we take the full breadth of Scripture, but we, we narrow it down to particular things that apply to the situation of the person across from us. And that's not just for people who are counselors but for anybody who's doing life together with other believers. So all to say, we should do well to understand the culture and society around us if we're going to write this verse down. And so I asked myself this question, and I looked around, and I thought, all right, what's the big thing is dominating the landscape today? So uh, we've got COVID-19 fatigue going on, right? Everybody's just tired of this, right? They're tired of the of the newest developments, the latest strains, whatever it is. Everybody's just tired of that, right? There's fatigue going on there. Uh, We have political rancor that is growing and growing to the point where people are checking out entirely. Um, It's wearying people. Growing anxiety and depression, especially in teens who are bombarded with uh, images and ideas in social media specifically that, that their brains are just not fully equipped to process yet, and it's, it's ruining people. Um, got divorce and suicide. By the way, both of those actually went down last year for the first time in a long time, and I don't really know why, but until last year, they'd both been skyrocketing. Um, you know, burnout as a society has reached an all-time high. Uh, it's led to something called the Great Resignation. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, this idea of the Great Resignation. Um, but literally last year, just people started quitting work in droves. Uh, people are just burnt out. Uh, now, my economist brother-in-law could explain the phenom- uh, phenomenon way better than I could. But basically, ever since the Industrial Revolution, people have been working longer and longer and harder and harder hours, right? Um, technology only allowed us to work harder. It didn't do more work for us to leave us less work to do. We just decided, oh, we can use this to work more. Um, The trope of the dad who misses his kids' ball games, uh, it's there for a reason. It's because people just worked and worked and worked and missed their families, and eventually they've grown to the point where they realize that that's not great. Um, They grew up with parents who missed their ball games, and so they've just... uh, decided not to start a family at all, right? So we're seeing people getting later married, or married later. Um, and this went on and on. And then, then we had uh, technology start to let work follow us home, right? So we get home from work, and we, we're still working. It's, either it's our boss texting us or emailing us, um, 
or, or you're going to work for Facebook or you're going to work for Instagram or any of those companies that are paying, uh, paying for your eyeballs, right? Because remember, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product, right? So we all, we all do all this work and it got to the point where people were exhausted and to the point where I believe the number was in November of last year, four and a half million Americans quit their jobs, which is a crazy number uh, because those people still have to eat, right? So those people are all leaving their jobs, either going to another job that they're hoping is going to be better, or they're quitting to work for themselves. And as someone who's been married to somebody who works for herself for the last 13 years, I can tell you, if you thought your last boss was a cruel taskmaster and you're quitting to work for yourself, wait till you meet your new boss. Um, We live in a burnt-out culture, and as a church, we're not feeling it much less, if any less. Uh, To paraphrase Isaiah, we are a burnt-out people, and we lived in the midst of a burnt-out people. So what truth does God have for a burnt-out nation? And for me, it comes to this verse that uh, I think it's my favorite passage in Scripture. It's Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for a gentle and lowly Savior. Lord, thank you for coming into our weariness. God, I pray that you would help us to understand the depths of your love for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I think is interesting about this passage is this is a situation where Jesus is making the first move, okay? Um, To give you an outline here, we're going to talk about Jesus' call. We're going to talk about a companion. We're going to talk about a course to lay out the old... uh, Um, alliterative outline there for you. Um, Jesus is making the first move here. And now, there are times when Jesus is not making the first move. I mean, you could argue he made the first move when he came to earth, right? But there's interactions where blind Bartimaeus is screaming out for him, right? And making a huge scene. And Jesus, it would kind of be awkward if Jesus didn't respond to him, right? Um, We have the Syrophoenician woman when she comes and like throws herself at Jesus' feet. Those are situations where Jesus is responding to a need that has presented itself, right? And that's, that's fine, right? That's, that's part of what, that's one way that, that God works. But here Jesus isn't responding to, uh, to a request. He is making the first move. He is proactively seeking these people, the group that we're going to pay attention to here. And his target market is an interesting one. Um, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And now I read to you the, the, the CSB translation, and I went back and forth on which translation to use here, because I, I think that CSB and, and the English Standard, which I know you guys use a lot of here too, if you put them together, you get really what these two descriptives are that, that Jesus is talking to. Uh, so the first one is weary, and that's the, the Greek word kopiao. Um, and your ESV, I believe, says all who labor, right? So, and those two words, weary and laboring, that's, that's a good picture of who Jesus is calling here. He is calling a group of people who are exhausted from hard toil, 
Uh, the, the Greek word actually carries with it battle implications. Um, wearing oneself out, great exertion. Uh, it's actually related to another word that I loved this in, in the dictionary I was reading. It says, weariness as though one had been beaten. Uh, it made me think of uh, a year or two ago, my wife's better with dates, we dug up the, our garden beds in the front of our house. And so I dug up all that and I bought new dirt to put in its place because our old dirt wasn't good. And at the end of those two or three days, or however long it took me, um, if you had done like the whole men in black thing and like erased my memory the next morning, and I just woke up feeling like I felt, and you'd ask me, hey, what'd you do this weekend? I, like, I'd been like, my first guess is I was walking in a wrong part of town and turned down the wrong alley and said the wrong thing to the wrong person who had the right baseball bat. Because that's what I felt like. I felt like I had been physically assaulted. And that's the degree of weariness that Jesus is talking about here. Um, so we combine that with fortizo, which is this Greek word meaning burden. And we're going to get into the burden. The burden part is really interesting here. Um, but it, is, it sounds like what, it's, it, it, what it sounds like. It's heavily laden because the ESV, I believe, all those who labor and are heavy laden. So it's bearing a heavy burden on our backs. Uh, that's the group. Jesus is calling a group of people, if we put that together, who are exhausted from the process of toiling under a heavy burden. Uh, and I think that speaks a lot to our people in America. It probably speaks to you in some way, shape, or form. You've felt that. You're feeling it. You love someone who's feeling it. Um, we had this ever-increasing world of work and work and work and work. There's your labor. And then you have something like COVID-19 comes out from outside. It's a burden. And it's exhausting. And we're spent. And we hit the ends of our limitations. But Jesus is referencing another kind of burden here also. So this, this word burden carries some, some weight to it, no pun intended. Um, we see him use this word elsewhere. Um, because I think we are burdened by COVID and politics and social media and all that stuff. But Jesus has something more specific in mind. Uh, Luke 11 is this really interesting verse. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of his woes. And it's, this, this seems funny to me because he's doing woe to all the Pharisees and then the teachers of the law. And say, they say something like, you know, when you insult them, you're insulting us. And Jesus is like, he's like, oh yeah, you guys, let's talk about you. And so he says, woe to you, also, well, sorry, woe also to you experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry. And yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. That's the burden Jesus is talking about. He's got a burden that he's seeing on the people's backs in his mind. And it's this burden of trying to earn God's favor. These people are striving for rightness with God because they've been told that the law... That God gave, if you keep it perfectly, you'll earn his favor. But then the Pharisees adding more laws to it, more rules. If you do all of this perfectly, you'll find, you'll find rightness. You'll find peace. You'll find uh, oneness with God. And by the way, if, if we look at like the rich young ruler, for example, who approaches Jesus and says, well, I've done all these things. We see that he's still burdened, right? There's a reason this rich guy shows up to Jesus and he's on his knees in front of him. It's because he's burdened. Um, this burden is something that no one can bear. Uh, if you look in your notes there, I've got a quote from The Pursuit of God uh, that Tozer writes. 
The burden is not a local one, peculiar to those first hearers, but one which is borne by the whole human race. It consists not of political oppression or poverty or hard work. It is far deeper than that. It is felt by the rich as well as the poor, for it is something from which wealth and idleness can never deliver us. The burden borne by mankind is a heavy and crushing thing. Now, we don't live in first century Israel. We are not Jewish. Uh, We're not practicing the Jewish faith. Um, And it's easy for us to look, by the way, at the Pharisees and sometimes paraphrase them and say, thank you, God, that I'm not like one of those Pharisees, right? Um, But we all have our own idols. And our idols aren't just sitting there idly, no pun intended. They are, they're giving us burdens of their own, right? In America, we have the idol of materialism. It says that happiness comes by earning and doing and buying and owning. Get the idol of popularity and of human approval. Tells us that happiness comes through liking and being liked and checking our statuses and making good points if you're more of like the argumentative social media type. It's the idol of politics that says, man, if we just got the right person in office or the right policies passed, we'd be happy. Uh, the idol of physical perfectionism that says, if I eat under this many calories a day, if I exercise this many times a week, I'll be happy and fulfilled. There's the idol of gluttony and laziness that says the exact opposite of that. We all have these idols that are begging to be worshipped, but they come with burdens, and we find them. And these wearinesses and burdens compound each other. And it's meant to do that. Um, at men's retreat, how many of you guys were at men's retreat this past weekend? It was great. Um, John Payne, our guest speaker, talked about uh, David, David's use in the Psalms of thirsting for God, right? So this, this imagery of like, I thirst, right? As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Um, and he said, thirst, it's not like God looked at thirst and said, oh, you know what? That's a good picture of how people need me. I'm going to write that down. God made us thirst for water from the beginning to remind us of our dependence on him, right? So that's, we thirst for God. I mean, we thirst for water because God wants us to know what thirst is like so we know how much we, we need to thirst for him and how we do thirst for him whether we know it or not. I think this weariness is a similar thing. We are weary because God, that exists physically, right? When I go out and dig up the garden, I'm exhausted because God wants to communicate something. That this is weariness. Pursuing life apart from him is weariness. He wanted, a, he wanted a touch point in my life that I could physically identify with so I'd know what life is like apart from him. So I'd encourage you to stop and assess and just take a few minutes this afternoon or the week. Um, maybe something's already jumped out to your mind. What are you laboring for? What's burdening you? What are you striving after? What's making you weary? Now, 
Jesus goes from this call of the weary, uh, and he offers them something interesting. He says, take my yoke upon you. Uh, how many of you know what a yoke is? Anybody? Uh, yeah, right? So, so literally speaking, uh, a yoke was this beam with these harnesses connected to it, and you would use it to attach two oxen together or other beasts of burden, and they would pull, it would help them to pull a plow together straight, right? It would help them to pull twice as much because they're doubling their efforts. Um, it's a farm tool. Now, what's interesting, though, here is that the word yoke had also, at this point in time, come to take on a bit of a symbolic meaning, specifically with regards to, uh, to taking on a rabbi's teaching, right? So you would be under a specific rabbi's yoke, okay? And I think that carries here because he uses the word learn from me. But, but I think we can see that Jesus means more that first meaning of, of an actual yoke, of a, of, of a burden, right? Uh, and I think we, we see that in verse 30. Um, scripture uses a lot of uh, rhetorical devices, literary devices, and one of them is parallelism, where God essentially says the same thing twice. Or sometimes he'll say, he'll say opposing things. So um, an example would be something like Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, right? That's, those are parallel ideas. He was this for our this. He was this for our this. Uh, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. And what God's doing there is he's equating these words with each other, right? And saying, hey, this is a further development or another angle on this same idea. So in verse 30, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So very clear. That's, a, that's just a classic Hebrew parallelism there. Um, Jesus is using this parallelism to say, hey, when I talk about this yoke, yeah, there's, there's wording there of teaching, and it, it applies a little bit. But I want you to understand that I'm still talking about this burden thing we were just talking about in the last sentence I said. Um, but that's a really interesting question, because why would Jesus ask you to take up a yoke? He's calling people who are weary and burdened. It seems almost cruel. Um, why would I... Why would he ask to put something on our shoulders if we're weary and burdened? Now, the first thing I think it helps to notice when we ask ourselves that question is that if we look at verse 28, he's calling what group of people? The weary and burdened. It's not like the choice is between no burden and this yoke, right? He's talking to a group of people that are already yoked with something. They're already burdened with something. Um, and specifically, it's the burden that he's talking about with the teachers of the law. So he says, you're burdened with this, this yoke of expectations of keeping God's law perfectly to earn his favor. And these teachers are putting this yoke on you, but they're not lifting a finger. Now, if they were lifting a finger, that might help. But instead, you've got a yoke where you've got one ox on one side and nothing on the other side. So this side's just on the ground. So what happens is that, at best, if that ox can walk, He's just going to like walk in circles like a one-legged duck swimming in a pond, right? He's just going to keep going around and around, if he can even move. Um, and, and that contrast right there, that Luke eleven forty six, 46 there, he's, he's, Jesus is here contrasting himself with these teachers of the law. He says, you're giving people this burden, but you're, you're not helping. You're not doing anything for them. Uh, here's another great quote from Tozer. He says, the heart of the world is breaking under this load of pride and pretense. There is no release from our burden. 
apart from the meekness of Christ. Good, keen reasoning may help slightly, but so strong is the vice that if we push it down in one place, it will come up somewhere else. By the way, I just liked this part right here in the book because I pictured A.W. Tozer playing in a pool with his kids with a beach ball and like holding it down and it popping up. And just the thought of A.W. Tozer in the, in the pool playing with a beach ball made me smile. Um, to men and women everywhere, Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. The rest he offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and cease to pretend. It will take some courage at first, but the needed grace will come as we learn that we are sharing this new and easy yoke with the strong son of God himself. He calls it my yoke, and he walks at one end while we walk at the other. That's why Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's how a yoke gives you rest. It's because we're not shouldering the burden. You know, if I were moving, um, I've got two boys. I've got a girl. Evangeline's 11. Atticus is 9. Emmett is 5. I'm going to picture Emmett because he's my littlest. And he's got a, let's say I've got a bunch of moving boxes. And I've got like a box of like books, which are just really heavy when you put enough of them in a box, right? And I'm picturing Emmett trying to like get down and lift up this box. And he just can't do it, right? And he's just trying and trying and, and God bless him, but he's just not going to get that thing moved. If I'm a good dad in that moment, maybe I haven't exhausted myself to the point of losing my, my patience. In my best dad moment, what am I going to do? Say, Emmett, come help me with this one. And I'll grab one handle and he'll grab the other and we'll walk. And I don't need his help, right? I don't need his help. But why am I asking him to come help me? First of all, I'm relieving his burden. He doesn't have to lift that. Somebody else will take care of that. I'll go back and do it later, honestly. Um, I want to teach him. Hey, here's how you carry something. Hey, look, come with me. And I just want his, I want his companionship. I want to be a companion to him. I want to be with him. Jesus doesn't ask for us to carry this burden because he needs our help any more than he needs. He didn't need that little boy's five loaves and two fishes to feed those 5,000 people, right? He wasn't like, oh, what am I going to do? And he gets these fish. Like, oh, now I can do something. He made the whole world. He doesn't need us to help. You know, if we think back to the garden, God created Adam and called him to work, right? He called him to tend the garden. It was good for Adam to do that. With the fall and the curse, that work became toil went from being productive, fulfilling work to labor. And it went from being working alongside God in the cool of the garden to working and toiling and idle and in uh, loneliness. And in this moment, Jesus is reversing the curse. He's restoring creation to its original order. He's asking us to work alongside him. This isn't like a summon to receive orders. He's inviting us to enjoy companionship with him. I love this thought from Dane Ortland. The word translated easy is the same word elsewhere translated kind. As in, for example, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. 
His yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. If you take away one thing this morning, hear this. Jesus does not bear your burdens begrudgingly. He most fully demonstrates his glory when he bears our burdens the heaviest. If we sprain an ankle, our right leg doesn't begrudge our left ankle if it's got to do more of the limping, right? If it's got to carry the weight. We're one with Christ, folks. And as one with his body, caring for us is caring for himself. He loves you. And he loves to bear your burdens. By the way, same word here, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens, right? And so fulfill the law of Christ. We grow in Christ-likeness when we bear each other's burdens too. Um, I'm going to embarrass my wife for a second here. Um, she's so nervous. Uh, I was, I was so blessed this past year to watch Angel bear a friend's burden. Angel had a friend in a really difficult spot with a heavy load to bear. And I watched my wife come alongside her and bear her burden faithfully and beautifully and graciously. And I've never been more proud of her. Um, And I was so grateful for the work that I saw God do in you and the evidence of grace in your care. It was, it was glorious. And the fact is, folks, do you ever like it? When when you're just generous with someone, don't you feel different? Isn't it a better feeling than anything else? Right? That's by design. We were made in God's image. The fall broke that image, right? Where it's marred and distorted. We are at our most Christ-like when we bear one another's burdens. That's why it feels great. It's because you're at your most real human. You are really a human then. We think of humanness in terms of brokenness. Separate those thoughts. We are human because we're made in God's image. And that image is broken by sin. But in these moments, we get glimpses of glory. And when we bear one another's burdens, there is a satisfaction in your soul that you know outstrips anything else because you're doing what you're built to do. All right, so we're strapped on with Jesus here. He's on one end of the yoke. We're on the other end. I, I picture almost as like, like the little donkey that like our feet don't even reach the ground and we're just like pedaling like this, right? Um. Nancy, if Roz pulled up outside your house in her car and said, hop in, let's go. What's your first question? Where are we going? Right? And some of you, depending on the friend, there's either like excitement 
or trepidation or outright panic and terror. You're like texting friends like, here's my last name, whereabouts? Um, so when Jesus straps us in on the yoke, um, I think our question should be, where are we going? Because the point of a yoke, right? So if you think about a yoke, it's a bar. It's meant to share labor, but it's also meant to keep your oxen on the same path, right? They're going somewhere together. You, you don't yoke two oxen and just leave them there. Uh, that's how you get tired oxen with no production. That's not what you want. And I think in order to figure out where Jesus is going with us, we've got to look back. Um, so let's step back a little bit in your Bible to verses 25 through 27, still Matthew 11. Jesus says, says, sorry, Matthew says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to, be, to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me. Right, so do you see that transition moment there? Where are we going with Jesus? We're going to the Father. Jesus is taking us to the Father. Now, that brings up an interesting question. How does that make you feel? Jesus says, we're going to see the Father. Um, because depending on your theology, maybe your upbringing, uh, that can have some different connotations to it, can't it? Right? Again, just like your friend pulling up, that same friend could be like, hey, we're going to see my dad. And depending on that friend and their dad, if you like zoom yourself back to your high school days for those of you who are in high school, that could be either awesome or terrifying, right? So when Jesus says, I'm bringing you to see my father, what, what do you feel? How do you feel in that moment? Because I think sometimes we can be prone to this really faulty good cop, bad cop theology of God, of the Trinity, where Jesus is the good cop and, and the father is the bad cop. And the father is the one who wants to wield wrath. And Jesus is the one who steps in. He's like, no, dad, it's cool. No, it's cool. He's with me. All right? And, and he's this, this intervening. But man, if, if he would just get out of the way, God would really do what he wants to do and smite us. I think we can be prone to that error. Um, but if we do that, we're overlooking the fact that God the father's mercy is highlighted over and over in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy. By the way, this is the only time God's ever described as being rich in anything in the Bible. You know that? It's the only time. Whenever God, uh, this, this word is used in Scripture elsewhere, it's almost always referring to a person negatively. The rich who squander away things, the rich who are selfish. But this is God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He's not just merciful. He loves being merciful. Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Um, I love this thought from Thomas Goodwin. I quote people because they're smarter than me. Okay? Um, and they have the, they're better at saying things than I am. God has a multitude of all kinds of mercies. As our hearts and the devil are the father of variety of sins, so God is the father of variety of mercies. There is no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. As there are a variety of miseries which the creature is subject unto, so he has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises in the scripture, which are but as so many treasure, treasure sorry, which are but as so many boxes of this treasure, the caskets of variety of mercies. If your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. As large and as various as are our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need, a mercy for every need. All the mercies that are in his own heart, he has transplanted into several beds in the garden of the promises where they grow. And he has abundance of variety of them suited to all the variety of the diseases of the soul. Jesus is saying, are you worn out? Are you overwhelmed? Are you exhausted? Come with me to my father. He has mercies for you. Friends, our pursuit of God is not toil because we are pursuing a God of mercies with the best friend we could ever have. A friend who bears our burdens perfectly and selflessly, eternally, at his own cost. Jesus bearing that yoke upon his back. When Jesus is making this offer, he knows what it's going to cost him. He knows it's not, not the last thing he's going to bear on his back for us. He knows that this is going to cost him his life. And that's why our morning quiet times aren't a checkbox. It's not something we do to earn God's favor. It's not a way of keeping score. We spend time with God in the morning or the evening or on our commute or while we're cleaning the kitchen or wherever you find time with Jesus because he's taking us to his Father to find mercies. So what do we do with this? Come to Jesus. If you don't know this Jesus, come to Jesus. If this all sounds foreign to you, find someone, ask them about Jesus. If you do know Jesus already, come to Jesus. If you fear that you're too far gone or beyond his ability to save you, Know that Jesus loves nothing more than bringing people to him. He doesn't do so 
out of revulsion or with hesitation. We think of God's holiness as being a thing that separates us as sinners from him. But we do that because we misunderstand and don't have a full understanding of his holiness. We are picturing a holy God responding as we would if we were the way that we picture his holiness to something that was unclean. But we forget that God's holiness includes holy compassion and holy mercy. And so he doesn't come to us as sinners and reluctantly because it's in the contract. (laughs) Okay, come on. No, he loves it. He gets to demonstrate perfect compassion in in that moment. Like Peter Ortland said, it's what gets him out of bed in the morning. Although God ever slumbers or sleeps, but you know, um, it's what he loves to do. Get to know Jesus. Um, I encourage you, if you're not already in a Bible reading plan, or if you started a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year, this is probably the part of the time where you've already fallen off the wagon. So let's start over. Pick a gospel, any gospel. Read it. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says and what he feels. The words and emotions of Jesus. Because I know my wife better than anybody because I know her words and emotions. We could say, oh yeah, Jell's a photographer or a birth doula. She's a mom. But I hear what she says. I hear her heart. And so I know her better than anybody else in the room. In the same way, I encourage you to spend time with Jesus. Read and slow down and look at the words that he says. Look at all the times it says he had compassion for them. Look at all the times that his heart is broken. People, Look at why he weeps. Look at what makes him angry. That's how you get to know Jesus. Uh, I'm going to recommend a resource only because it was given to— I asked Jeff if I could do this. I know you already have a men's book and everything. Um, this book was given away at the men's retreat. And uh, so this book I was on the fence about buying, and then I saw a tweet by— um, I can't think of his name. I just blanked on his name. Mark Dever, who has read a lot of books, saying, thanks, Dane Ortland, for writing one of the best books I've ever read. And I was like, shut up and take my money. Um, <laughs> this is Gentle and Lowly. Uh, this book will be being read 100 years from now. Okay. Uh, here's what I love about this book. Uh, it, is a, it, is, it is an exploration of the heart of Jesus, on the emotions of Jesus, on the very character of Jesus as Gentle and Lowly. Um, there have been a lot of books written recently by Christian authors and non-Christian authors into this space of weariness and exhaustion. A lot of time management books, a lot of um, how to do life better, right? How to manage things, habit books. And I'm I'm kind of a nerd for habit books too, so I like some of those. Um, But most of them live in how you feel and what you do. Even the Christian ones. And they're not unbiblical. They're just not very, very, very biblical. This book is very, very, very biblical. <laughs> there is so much scripture and rich theology in this book, but it reads so easy. Um, 
Spend one chapter a day with it and just think about Jesus. Spend the rest of your day just thinking about Jesus in the way that he talked about that chapter. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Get it. It is worth it. Uh, wives, steal your husbands that got them at the men's retreat. Uh, husbands, fight over them with your wife. Or just get another copy. Uh, read what each other highlights and underlines. Um, again, really, really recommend it. It's just a great exploration of Jesus' heart. Um, my last point of application is, is tell somebody about Jesus. The people around you have an understanding that they think is accurate of Jesus. People that maybe don't know him. And that application, that, sorry, that, uh, that picture of Jesus has come from a lot of places. It's come from distortions, both done by those outside and inside the church, if we're honest. We've bundled things in. We've left things out. Um, and a lot of people's reactions to Jesus, a lot of people who've rejected the faith, um, they're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting what they think Jesus is. Um, I encourage you, the more you get to know about Jesus and the more you understand him and the more you come to love and appreciate his heart for you, that you would show that to others, that you would show it by doing acts of mercy and that you do it by telling people why you do acts of mercy that you would love people with your words and with your deeds. Parents with kids, make sure this is the Jesus they know. Make sure your kids grow up knowing this Jesus and this God the Father who has mercies for them that are new every morning, that are not a cruel taskmaster, that are not harsh and judgmental. Make sure your kids know this Jesus and take it to their friends. Because uh, they're hearing from every place else that Jesus is nothing like this. But take the man at his word. Know him and tell others about him and delight in his presence. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your mercy. God, I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, Lord. I'm so thankful that your mercy is not dependent on who deserves it. Lord, that you love us because of the great love with which you loved us. Because you're rich in mercy. God, I pray for those in this room today that are feeling weary and burdened. Lord, the weariness and the burden of American life in the 21st century, the weariness and the burden of internal expectations, of idols they can't shake, Maybe it's the weariness and burden of illness. Of love for others that are troubled. God, I pray that they would know your mercy. That they would feel you lift them up in your tender arms. Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks and years this body of believers would come to be known as one that exudes the mercy of Jesus Christ, that makes his name beautiful in this community, makes everyone know that Jesus really does shine fairer and Jesus really does shine purer. And Lord, that that would revolutionize this community. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for their heart to get to know you. 
Lord, I bless. I pray you would bless them as they go about their week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.